Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Jason Holland, Managing Director at Best Invest. Today we're going to discuss Best Invest's latest Spot the Dog report, which is published on a semi-annual basis and highlights funds that have been performing poorly consistently over the past three years. Jason will also share his wisdom on the current investment landscape and how investors can protect their wealth. Jason, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm well, thanks. So your Spot the Dog report is a welcome change from the slews of best buy lists there are for people to pick between. Can you start by giving us a quick overview of the thought process behind the report and how you identify a dog fund? Yeah, sure. I mean, we've been doing this since the mid '90s, so it's it's uh, become a sort of long-established part of the um, of the sort of investment landscape. And the, the original idea behind it was, of course, you know, uh, people are always hearing about the funds that are doing well, um, you know, that are being heavily marketed. But actually, most fund companies, um, you know, have some disappointing funds in their in their product ranges. And we think it's really important that people are aware of the laggards. Um, and the idea is really to encourage people to to look more closely at the things they already own in their portfolios and to question whether or not they should make changes if a fund that they own is uh, you know, seriously disappointing on expectations. It's important to say, you know, it is it is a statistically driven report. So um, we're not saying just because the fund is here, you should definitely switch out of it. There may, there may be reasons to explain why it's done poorly or uh, reasons why you might want to hang on in there. The, the filters we use, though, is first of all, we look at um, equity funds um, and equity funds that have a minimum track record of three years and that are available to uh, uh, private investors. We then um, scan the, those universe of funds on really two criteria. First of all, we look at funds that have underperformed on the trot for three 12-month periods in succession. And the idea here is really just to find those funds, first of all, that are consistently undershooting rather than those that you know may have had a short run of bad luck. But then the second criteria we apply to screen out things like tracker funds is we then uh, look across the entire three-year uh, period and we look for funds that have done at least 5% worse than the market they invest in. And importantly, we use market benchmarks. We use MSCI indices. So we're not using sort of sector averages. You know, we're, we're, we're looking at, you know, how the overall market has performed that these funds invest in. Do you find that many people on that use the best invest platform also own these funds there are are, are occasions where people do own these funds and in fact um you know it's it, it is occasionally the case that actually there might have been a fund that was on our buy list that uh, does end up temporarily in spot the dog and we would always fess up and, and uh, highlight that um at the moment i think um uh that there aren't any which is which is obviously good news but it can happen from time to time in the last edition, uh, back at the start of the year, um, there were a number of value funds uh, in in the report, including one or two that had been on our buy list. But generally, most investors who are on the best invest invest platform won't own these because actually, in a number of cases, some of the worst offenders are products that are, are, are offered purely through banks and uh, life companies, uh, where they have, if you like, captive distribution. So, in this edition of Spot the Dog. Uh, the biggest offender as a business overall was actually HBOS, uh, in particular, a couple of very big Halifax funds. Those funds are not available on platforms like Best Invest. They're distributed purely through uh, HBOS's banking network. 
I thought that was very interesting because it said in the report that they were managed by Schroders as the investment manager or the investment advisor. And Schroders doesn't have any of its own funds in the report. Why does that happen? Yes, I mean Schroders um, do have a, a couple of funds, but the, the, you know their their position in the rankings, thankfully, is much improved in the latest edition. They had a number of funds in uh, back at the start of the year. As I say, their own brand funds are pretty scarce in the latest edition of Spot the Dog, but they do manage on a sub-advisory basis. So in other words, the the investment advice is contracted out to Schroders. uh, So they manage funds for both HBOS and Scottish Widows under contract, you know, two two of the more prominent houses in here. I think the the issue here is, you know, a lot of these sort of big banks that they offer, they want to offer a very sort of core range of products and they tend to, fairly closely approximate what the index is doing but obviously if you're charging active fund management scale of fees for portfolios that are not really designed to shoot the lights out and they're not going to stray too far from the index that becomes a recipe for underperformance. Well, I was going to ask if there are any consistencies you see across the investment process in dog funds. Maybe is is index hugging one of them or is there anything else? I think there's a range of reasons why a fund can end up in Spot the Dog. You know, in some cases, it will be a case of these are products that are managed in a fairly non-high conviction manner. So they, they are they are essentially um, managed in a way that is quite close to to the way to, to the shape of the index but are charging you know fuller active fund management fees and therefore that leads to sort of steady grinding underperformance over time in other cases though funds can end up in there because perhaps they have a very strong style bias so obviously you know in recent years the market has been led by growth stocks really until sort of last November last year. So for a long period of time, you know, managers who focus perhaps on identifying undervalued companies have, have, have sort of lagged the wider market and therefore funds with a very strong value style bias, you know, have often ended up in spot the dog. But of course, there, there, there are other funds that end up in there. And the only real conclusion is actually, if you take a closer look at them, it's just poor decision making, bad stock selection, you know, uh, bad positioning against the, uh, the market. So, you know, a fund can end up in, in here for, for a variety of reasons, um, you know, ranging from it just has a, a strong, it, its investment style is out of favour through to actually um, the manager simply isn't um, doing a very good job. And to put a more positive spin on things, I think the most noticeable thing in your latest report is that the number of dog funds has halved since... <laughs> Yes, I mean, this is something this is interesting. So we saw a really high number of funds at the end of uh, last year, 150 funds. That's come down to 77. And actually, you know, at the time that report ca- came out, you know, I, I, I was sort of telling a few people it wouldn't surprise me if the numbers reduced considerably over over the uh, next half of the year, because from November last year when um, the vaccines were discovered you started to see quite a dramatic bounce back in those sort of more economically um, sensitive and cyclical parts of the market, the parts of the market that really got hit last year in the pandemic, areas like energy and financials. You know, anyone who was owning those um, last year obviously got punished, but there's been quite a sharp bounce back in those parts of the market, you know, as um, vaccine-fueled optimism has um, led to, you know, recovery in, in those types of stocks. And the other th- area, of course, is, you know, if you were a manager running a fund 
where you know dividends were an important part component of your strategy last year was an awful year for dividend paying funds because there were so many cuts to dividends across the market but obviously dividends have become you know come bouncing back this year as companies have seen profits recover and as optimism has obviously swelled that um we're through the sort of worst of it with the pandemic and the lockdown so that i think has been a major driver of the sort of um rebounding performance of a number of the funds that look really poor um, just several months ago. And another thing is that funds are now required to publish value assessment reports. Are you, are you seeing that make a, a difference to fund performance? I think that is, an, you know, is going to be a, a, an important part of the mix. There's no doubt, you know, over the years when we've been publishing Spot the Dog, you know, it's added pressure on fund companies to address those funds where performance is poor but obviously the regulator is helping us with that job now by requiring fund companies to to publish these reports reviewing you know um whether their fund ranges have added value and um there's no doubt i think that that has increased the impetus on fund companies to (coughs) address those funds where performance has lagged either by making changes to the manager or the process (coughs) or at the very least uh, reducing costs, so I do think that is going to become, you know, uh, an increasingly important fact, important factor on m- making fund companies take action where it's needed. I noticed, perhaps not surprisingly, that very few smaller companies' funds made the list. Uh, the theory being that active managers can do better in the less well-researched parts of the market. Has this always been the case? No, it hasn't actually. So it used to be the case that smaller company funds, you know, um, did did regularly appear in Spot the Dog. But over the last couple of years in particular, it's become noticeable that they are a dying breed. And I think that um, does give credence, certainly anecdotally, to the idea that actually in less researched parts of the market, active fund managers can add more value by discovering hidden gems that the rest of the market hasn't noticed yet. I think there are a a couple of factors at play here. Firstly, um, certainly the big global investment banks now have um, uh, cut their coverage of stocks and typically now only uh, research, uh, you know, large cap stocks and have really sort of withdrawn research coverage, even from many mid caps as well as smaller companies. Secondly, I think another interesting driver here is, of course, you've had this rise in use of um, passive funds. And of course, passive funds, you know, essentially are directing more flow into larger companies and really are not a, are not a feature impacting smaller companies. So if you take the FTSE All Share, for example, even though around about 43% of the companies that, uh, that comprise of the FTSE All Share Index are actually smaller companies, their representation in an index tracker is about 3.5% um, of the portfolio. So the smaller companies arena is largely untouched by trackers, is increasingly devoid of third-party research. And I think that does mean active fund managers who do do their homework uh, and you know, uh, pick the right stocks actually can add a lot of value. And and the other, just looking at geographies, it's very noticeable how there are more North America dog funds than other geographies. Uh, again, probably not surprising given how successful the largest companies have been, and the index is very hard to beat. Where are you seeing the best geographies for active? Fund managers. Well, actually, so the UK is in a pretty good uh, place. So, uh, of the starting universe of funds we looked at, only 
3% of funds in the UK oil company sector were screened as dog funds. So that is low, you know, um, in North America and global funds, you're, you're up near a sort of 19, 20% uh, of um, the eligible, eligible universe were screening as dog funds. So very low in the UK. So that's that's obviously encouraging, particularly as UK investors, you know, typically over, overweight UK equities. Uh, as I say, you know, uh, there aren't any when it comes to UK smaller companies funds, North American smaller company funds, or, or indeed Japanese smaller companies funds. Um, emerging markets as well, uh, very low incidence of dog funds. Bear in mind the index there, of course, is dominated by China, is a huge component of the MSC Emerging Market Index. But most actively managed fund managers, you know, do not do not um, put such a high weighting on China. And I think that has been, um, you know, given them more, more freedom to, um, to take bets or asset allocation views that are, you know, um, very different from the index and to, to add value that way. How important do you think the management company is to a performance of a fund. There is a section of the report that lists the companies and how many dog funds they have. How much influence do you think the overall fund group has? I think it can have an influence. I mean, the reality is, is uh, you know, big fund groups tend to dominate Spark the Dog for one uh, pretty obvious reason is they tend to have very extensive product ranges. And of course, it's unusual to be doing uh, well across the board in every area at, at the same time. So, you know, if you've got a huge range of funds at any given time, you'll have some things that are doing well. You have some things that are sort of OK, um, but you'll also perhaps have one or two products that are that are, you know, uh, struggling. So that's really the reason why it's the big, bigger companies that tend to be the worst defenders overall. Whereas, of course, if you're a boutique manager, perhaps specialising in a one particular area like UK equities or Japanese equities, very naturally, you're, you're less likely to feature prominently. What really matters, though, of course, to most investors is actually the individual fund or product. Do they hold any of these? You know, just because, for example, you know, Fidelity may have a few funds in Spot the Dog doesn't mean you should take a negative view on Fidelity as a house because they will also have a number of funds that are certainly well worth backing. And, you know, one of the things we also highlight in Spot the Dog is some of our sort of pedigree picks, which are the funds that we think are are, are worth looking at in each sector. And, um, you know, in many cases, there'll be companies there who also have dog funds in other parts of uh, in other parts of their product ranges. Why do you not include investment trusts in the report? Well, it's, you know, it is very important as well if you own investment trusts to keep a BDI on those. But the assessment criteria, I think, would be a little bit diff- different. And, and that's because, of course, the performance of an investment trust stock will also be influenced by buying and selling activity, discounts and premiums. So I think, you know, it does involve, uh, you know, um, a little bit more complexity in assessing the case for whether to hold on to an investment trust. For example, a trust could have actually very good underlying performance, but might temporarily be trading at a wide discount because there's bigger, been a big um, institutional seller of the shares. And therefore, that alone should not be uh, cast a cloud on your judgment as to whether or not it's worth holding on to that, um, that trust share. So I think um, it would involve a, a different set of criteria would need to be applied. Yeah, you'd have to look at the net the, the net asset value performance. Correct, that's right, yeah. Which is not necessarily the returns the investors get. Exactly. And um, of course, you know, in the case of investment trusts, you know, if, if the share price performance is slightly disappointed um, because of a widening discount, actually that's probably more of a reason to buy the shares um, rather than actually um, to consider switching them elsewhere. Um, we talked 
a little bit about passive earlier when you're talking about smaller companies. Just moving away from the reports, you've been looking at this for a long time. What's your take on active versus passive in the context of portfolio construction? How, yeah. how can investors use both of them to best effect? Well, I think that's the, you, you've hit the nail on the head there. You know, over many years, this sort of active v passive uh, debate has become overly polarised. There are obviously people who, you know, take very dogmatic views either way. Uh, I don't personally, and we don't as a business. The reality is, you know, when when you're investing, you need a range of different strategies in your toolkit. And there's a, there's a place for both active funds and passive funds, you know, depending on a particular market and also depending on where, where we are in the cycle. Passive funds, obviously, are a great way of benefiting from strongly rising markets at low costs. Of course, they're not going to be the type of stress you want to be in, you know, when markets are trending sideways or, of course, falling in value because they're designed simply to replicate uh, movements in the index. So, you know, typically, you know, uh, passives can be very useful in those big liquid markets like large cap US equities. As we as you observed uh, uh, earlier, there's always been quite a number of US funds in Spot the Dog. It's a really difficult market for active fund managers to beat. Why? Because it's so heavily traded, it's so heavily researched by investment banks, by hedge funds, uh, by brokers, you know, and it's quite difficult to spot something about a very large, you know, global US large cap company that the rest of the market hasn't noticed. So, you know, Warren Buffett himself has, of course, famously observed that actually uh, when he dies, he would um, leave instructions that uh, his wife's uh, assets are um, largely placed in a low cost S&P 500 index tracker. But that's not actually, you know, not an unreasonable strategy for the long term, actually, for your US large cap exposure, buying an index fund could be, a, you know, a perfectly sensible strategy. But around that, you might want to own, for example, an actively managed US smaller companies fund, because you simply won't get exposure to that part of market through a tracker fund alone. So, you know, I do think it's important not to be dogmatic, you know, where you can't find high conviction fund active fund managers with a demonstrable track record of consistently outperforming you know tracker um, may be the best option to populate that bit of your portfolio what about tony's model portfolios take a a medium risk how much is in passive and how much what proportion would be in active it's a good question. I mean, I couldn't tell you actually off the top of my head. There's, there, you know, we use both, and indeed, all, we do manage portfolios for some clients who want to be solely invested through passives, um, using solely passives. But you know, in, in, yeah. in our core portfolios, we would use a combination of actively managed funds and, and index funds, predominantly active funds, where you know we can find managers we have a strong conviction in. But um, it will be, will be a blend of um, both actively managed and, and passive funds. And just zooming out to your overall asset allocation and how you're feeling about the investment markets currently, are you overweight or underweight equities in general? Well, I mean, you know, equities we still feel is the relatively more attractive asset class. Yes, there are parts of the equity market where where valuations are demanding, particularly tech and and more widely US equities. But if you look at where fixed income is, um, you know, fixed income does look um, pretty vulnerable. 
with rising inflation, yields are still very, very low. So we think the advantage is still with equities, but there are some headwinds out there. One risk is obviously any reining back of um, stimulus programs by central bank. As I mentioned earlier, valuations in some parts of the market are stretching. Rising interest rates would not be good either for fixed income or equities, um, you know, so there, so there are certainly some headwinds, but um, overall, we do still feel the advantage is still with equities. But I guess we're just become a, just a little bit more ca- cautious on investment markets after what's been an incredibly strong run. Tina is the acronym being bandied around at the moment. There is there is no alternative. <laughs> Well, you know, obviously on, on, you know, a range of valuation metrics, traditional metrics, equities (coughs) do look pricey compared to their history. But the one metric where they don't look overly pricey is against bond pricing. And so really, as you you rightly say, at the moment, it's the the natural place where we'd expect to see uh, cash to go. But it is important to be aware of, of more, more aware of the valuations you're paying than perhaps you needed to for some time. Which is why in our own asset allocation, you know, we've we've sort of moved underweight US. We've sort of sort of top topped up in UK equities, which do look relatively reasonable value, and we're increasingly adding a little to both Europe and Japan. And what's your view on alternatives? They seem to be playing an increasingly important role in portfolios. Perhaps if we could talk about REITs first. I mean, we so so we do allocate in a sort of core growth growth portfolio. We'd be around about sort of seventeen percent in um, alternatives and and real assets. That would include things like physical gold. We we we, we you know have an allocation there really as a sort of insurance policy against against sort of a, 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 a collapse in confidence in the financial system. We do use um, uh, absolute return strategies. At the moment, we're not holding physical property in, in portfolios. We think there are too, too, still too many uncertainties out there. Um, you know, we, we would certainly prefer um, real estate securities as opposed to funds invested in uh, physical real estate because, of course, you know, there are some structural changes happening in the property market as businesses change their their working models and move to sort of smart working, their office footprint uh, needs are are lower than perhaps the past. Obviously, there's been a big shift, a continuing shift towards online shopping away from uh, physical shopping. So there's still, I think, too many uncertainties out there um, for physical property. And what are your thoughts on infrastructure? So, I mean, you know, obviously infrastructure is, is, is a sort of huge theme at the moment because many governments, including our own, are looking to encourage infrastructure investment as they sort of build back better in the wake of the pandemic. So, you know, it's an area where it is a very sort of hot theme, but also infrastructure has some quite interesting characteristics. Firstly, the, the underlying nature of the projects invested in are very long term, typically sort of 20 years plus in nature. So, um, they uh, are, are somewhat immunised from sort of cyclicality in the economy, um, but also it is it is very commonplace to include inflationary uh, adjustments to the revenues on infrastructure products, so in, in infrastructure projects. Infrastructure can also help uh, inflation-proof a portfolio. So 
you know, it is an interesting area. The, the trouble is, is your ability to get exposure to operational pro- projects, because while there are a number of listed infrastructure investment companies on the London Stock Exchange, these do trade at quite big premiums to NAV because the yields are very attractive. But, you know, that's something to be mindful of is, you know, you're paying double digit premiums. So when we tend to invest in these, it's usually when these investment companies are doing a fundraising uh, and issuing new shares as opposed to buying the shares on the secondary market. Yes, I think that definitely makes sense given the level of the premiums. You said um, 17% allocation to alternatives, which is quite high, I think. How much do you, exposure do you have to fixed income? So in the sort of core growth p- portfolio, it's going to be around about 20%. To, to um, you know, Most of that will be in, in areas like high yield bonds. We also tend to hold a little bit of emerging market debt in portfolios. I think you know what, what isn't very attractive in the current environment is sort of um, conventional nominal bonds. So you know, government bond yields are so low that there's sort of little reason to uh, want to invest in those. The yields are incredibly low, negative after you count for inflation. Uh, so it tends to be in, in areas like high yield. We're also, you know, where you do hold um, corporate bonds in the current environment, as, you know, expectations are that um, rates will need to rise. If particularly if inflation improves a problem, we're tending to hold sh- shorter duration bonds. Can you, can you explain um, how duration works? Well, you know, obviously, you know, if, if you're investing in funds or portfolios that are holding bonds that have a long time to mature, maybe, you know, 20, 30 years, uh, they're going to be a lot more volatile to any changing expectations of either inflation or interest rates. And obviously, this is a huge debate at the moment uh, in the markets. We've seen inflation surge in the US and the UK Um there's a debate as to whether or not that's transitory, just a sort of temporary distortion from the bounce back of after last year's deep recession, or whether or not actually some of this could be more more sort of pro- problematic um, due to the you know the volume of money sloshing around the financial system. Uh, but obviously, you know, if if um, inflation does become more problematic, it puts pressure on central banks to start. Um, you know, tapping on the brakes of monetary stimulus, winding down QE schemes, you know, raising interest rates further down the line. And obviously, that would not be good uh, for bond markets because bond yields would need to rise and uh, therefore bond prices, capital prices would need to fall. And, and you know, the, the, if you're holding a portfolio that's skewed to lo- longer duration bonds, you're going to be at the sharp end of that volatility. Is all your bond exposure through funds? Uh, yes, in the in in sort of um in in sort of Tilney Central portfolios, they are obviously in our private client uh, business. Some clients uh, will have portfolios where they own individual bonds, but um, the majority of our exposure would be. And to loop back um, to funds, the, the theme of the podcast. How many funds do you think it's appropriate for a private individual to own? Perhaps if we break it down between equities and fixed income and alternatives. Yeah. Well, this is a really good point. And, um, you know, there isn't a hard and fast rule, but it's something I've noticed occasionally. I've done sort of, you know, reviews of IC readers portfolios. And, uh, you know, you do come across people who end up with sort of 50 or 60 funds, you know, in their their personal portfolio. And I I always think that must be incredibly difficult to keep an eye on all of those. And I think, you know, there is just a natural tendency. People often each year, you know, it comes that time of year when they invest in their ice or their pension and they and they and they sort of think what am i going to invest in this year 
and it's very natural to, to then add something new to your portfolio because you look around and think what's doing well at the moment you know what, what is being heavily tipped and what happens over time you end up with these sprawling collections of funds that look a little bit more like a museum of um, yesterday's hot tips than necessarily a sort of what you know um, structured portfolio it's human nature and I think the other thing is often people own um, funds or investments that actually haven't worked out that well but then rather than sort of taking the um, decision to move on perhaps sort of hang on in the hope that things will eventually um, turn around my own rule is to try to not hold more than 20 funds or trusts for me i think that's a sort of manageable number but also i think it's really good discipline because when you see something else that you're tempted to invest in it makes you take a look at what you already own and re- either reaffirm your conviction that those are the right funds to own or consider actually you know um, exiting one of those to make way for something new so i think it actually puts a good discipline on on you as a as an investor to sort of you know mentally cap the number of um, funds you're going to own. If you went and had a, a portfolio managed by a private client manager, you know, tip, a fund portfolio, and by that I mean both um, OICs or investment companies, it would perhaps be sort of twenty to twenty five funds is very is is very normal. So um, that is the sort of uh, range that I think um, is broadly sensible. Diversification is a really good thing, but you can end up over-diversified. And I think it's just a really practical point about it's better to hold 20 funds that you know know well and you can stay on top of rather than a huge number um, that perhaps uh, you're, you know, you're less actually on top of in terms of knowing what's going on and, um, you know, how the manager's doing and um, where it's positioned. And over-diversification can impact performance negatively would that be correct of course well also i think the other thing is you know whether you hold whether you choose to hold you know a dozen or 20 funds is um, what's really important is that every holding should be able to contribute to return i think you know if you end up with 50 60 holdings any any one of which might be you know one percent of your your portfolio is it really going to make a meaningful co- co- contribution i think you should um, really sort of only hold funds or trusts where you've got a high degree of conviction if you end up uh, owning too many things and too many investment styles essentially you're just going to end up um uh, uh, owning um the market well jason thank you so much for your time i'm afraid that's all we've got time for but that was really interesting really appreciate your time and especially as you um can hear you've got a sore throat so thank um, you Thanks for bearing with, with me and thanks for having me on. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>